Psalm 64, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear, They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search from the inward, uh, for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass uh, withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing to us upon his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you once again that you have given us your word that you have not left us to grope around in the dark on our own to try to figure out who you are and why we are here and, and, and the way of salvation through faith in Christ and the way that you would have us as your redeemed people to live out of gratitude for your grace to us in him. We, we pray that you would once again work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have been with us, it's been a while since we were in the Psalms on the first Sunday of the month. It's been a few months. Uh, but if you're, if you read through this section of Psalms, you'll, you'll notice that, uh, once again, you hear in this, in this Psalm, you, it's a prayer of David. And we find David, uh, praying and asking God to deliver him from the attacks of his enemies who were plotting against him. That was a, it's a very common theme in David's, uh, Psalms. It's been a very consistent theme in this section of Psalms. If you were to read, Psalms uh, 52 through 64, you'll see this coming up again and again and again in one way or another. It's also a very common theme in all the Psalms. You know, if you were to read all Psalms, the 150 of them, it would take you a while. You'd notice sprinkled throughout the Psalms, pretty much all through it, something like this kind of a theme throughout. You know, the Psalms are the Psalm, we say they're the Psalm book of Israel or the Song book of Israel. They're also the Song book of, of the church militant. And the conflict is something that you see throughout the Psalms, and it's not an accident. You know, even in, in the 23rd Psalm, if you could, if you would imagine a Psalm in the entire Psalter that wouldn't mention your enemies, it'd be the, the Lord is my shepherd. And yet, what has he done? You, you, thou hast preparest a table for me in the presence of what? Mine enemies. It's a very common theme. It's, it's there all the way throughout the Psalms. And in, in these Psalms, he speaks of his enemies. He, he prays very often in the Psalms that God would deliver him from their wicked plots and their attacks, whether, whether that be military or otherwise, or even in words. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, his life, David's life, his life was one of conflict, and very seldom does he finish a psalm without mentioning his enemies. In this instance, his thoughts are wholly occupied with prayer against them. I think it's one of those things that, you know, when you don't think about it, you just kind of read over it. But if you think about it, you see it's very common 
And David had a, a, a habitual reliance upon God in prayer about these things. And Spurgeon continues and says this about that. He says, It is our duty to note how constantly David turns to prayer. It is his battle axe and weapon of war. He uses it under every pressure, whether of inward sin, like Psalm 51, or outward wrath, foreign invasion, or domestic rebellion. We shall act wisely if we make prayer to God our first and best trusted resource in every hour of need. That's true. I mean, it's, it's our duty. And why is it our, why is, why does Spurgeon say it's our duty, your duty and mine to take note of that? It's because these things, like Psalm 64, weren't written just for our information. They were written for our edification. They were written as an example for you and I to imitate. We're to imitate their faith and imitate their faith even in their prayers. You know, if King David, of all people, needed to pray during time of conflict and trial, how much more do you and I need to pray? You know, you and I, I think sometimes we tend to think of, of some estimable godly man of the past, whether in the Bible or in, in just in our own past history, we think, oh, well, that, that person, that man or woman was so godly, they could probably get by without praying so much. But, but when you read about them, whether you read in scripture or Christian biographies, what do you find? They're always people of prayer. They prayed more. Maybe that was the secret of their godliness. They depended and trusted in God more. Well, if King David needed to pray in time of conflict and trial, how much more do you and I need to pray and do likewise? And, and to use his quote there, is prayer your weapon of warfare? Is prayer your weapon? Is it, is it the first one you go to? If you go to your armory and you think, what weapon am I going to use against this attack, whatever it may be, or this trial or conflict? What, is it the first one you go to? Or do we go to other things? Is it the first weapon that you resort to in time of trial? May God be pleased to use this particular psalm this morning to teach us to pray, especially in time of conflict and trial. Well, let's look at three things, hopefully, in this psalm of David. The first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 6, is David's complaint. David's complaint. It's the word he uses. He tells God, he asks God to hear his complaint, to address his complaint. His complaint was about the arrows of his enemies. The second thing we're going to see is David's confidence. David's confidence. And what was his confidence in? The arrow of God against the arrows of his enemies. And the third thing we're going to see is David's conclusion to this whole matter in the final two verses of the psalm. So the first thing in our text is David's complaint. Look at verse 1. He says, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. What's David doing in prayer here? He's kind of arguing his case. He's lifting up his case to God in prayer. You know, we often lift up our case to everybody but God. We complain to each other and things. What does David do? David says, God, hear Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. He's making his case before God. You know, complaints are supposed to go uphill, not, not downhill, so to speak. And he's, he's doing what Paul talks about in Philippians 4, 6. What does Paul say in, in, verse, in verse 6 of Philippians 4? He says, Do not be anxious for anything but what? Uh, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Make your request or let your request be made known to God. That's what David is doing here. Instead of just being anxious, he's making his request known 
to God. And what does Paul say the result of that kind of prayer will be in that in that passage? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what that's what David's doing in this psalm. You know, many of the psalms are prayers. They're not just songs to be sung; they're prayers to be prayed. They're addressed to God first and foremost. Now, what was David's complaint? What is his trial? What is the conflict that he was dealing with here? It's easy to, when when you first read it at first blush. You might think. Oh, David's a man of war. This is a, a, a military battle. But as, as you read through, you find out that's not really what it is. He prays about his enemies. He asks God to deliver him from their plots. He describes everything kind of in sets of three. It's like he's emphasizing how great his trial was. He asks God to what? In verse 1 and 2, to preserve his life. So he's in danger of some kind. He's asking God to hide or protect him from three things about his enemies. The first thing is he asks God to to hide him from the dread or the fear of his enemy. Don't just hide me from the enemy. Help me with the fear that I might not be in fear of my enemy. He, He asked God to help him and hide him from the secret plots of the wicked and the throng, verse 2, of evildoers. That last That last phrase of the three has the idea of rebellion or insurrection. It's like people are plotting against King David as he's on the throne. They're trying to undermine and overthrow his rightful rule in Israel. And so what was David's weapon? He describes their weapons, right? What was his weapon? David's weapon was prayer. But what were their weapons of choice in their attacks on David? Look at verses 3 to 4. David says of his enemies that they are those, quote, who wet their tongues like swords. You ever sharpen a knife with a whetstone? They're getting it really sharp. They wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. It's it's a picture of a sneak attack, of a cowardly attack, somebody hiding in the bushes. It's one thing to have a fair fight. It's another thing entirely just to jump out at somebody or to shoot when they can't even see. So in this case, what are the what are the enemies using as their weapons? Not actual weapons, but their words. You've probably heard the old saying, maybe when you were a kid, your parents told you, uh, you probably know exactly what I'm about to say, sticks and stones, you could probably finish it, may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And every kid that's ever said that didn't believe a word of it, <laughs> right? They might not break your bones, but they don't, they don't not hurt, Right? Well, there, there's some truth in that. Words can only do so much, but I think in some ways we have to be aware that words can do real damage. The scripture over and over again says, I think it has far more to say about the damage of words than it does weapons. It also has a lot to say about what good words, what good words can do. Words can do real, real harm or real help. And it's not without reason the apostle James says the following in James 3 verses 5. Through six, he says, so also the tongue is a small member, it's a small part of our bodies, right? Yet it boasts of great things, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And as if that wasn't enough, he ends by saying, and is set on fire by what? Hell. You think of 
Your hands is doing damage. You don't think of this little piece of flesh in your mouth doing that kind of harm. And what does he call it? It's a fire. It's almost like we have to think of our tongues as a lit fire. And you don't play with fire. You keep it contained. You know, when you have a fireplace, you have a door. You have things, a screen to keep it uh, behind. And he calls it a world of unrighteousness. That's a that's one heck of a phrase. A world of unrighteousness it can do a lot of of damage. In Psalm sixty four, here David speaks of the words of his enemies as three different things. Here he uses the sets of three again as swords as arrows, and even as snares, traps for his feet. In other words, what did, does David think lightly of their words? No, he, he knows they can do very severe damage. Every bit as dangerous they are as any sword or arrow or actual physical snare. How dangerous can wicked words be? Just think of the ninth commandment. I know it's easy to kind of, we often, I think sometimes, I know I do this, sometimes you read the commandments and your brain, your mind kind of translates them into something else. And the ninth commandment might be the one that we do that the most with. What is the ninth commandment? Quiz time, we just read it this morning, right? It forbids bearing false witness against your neighbor. Now consider the wording of that commandment. As short as it is, you know, thou shalt not, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. It doesn't just say don't lie. That include it includes that. It, it implies that, but it doesn't just say thou shalt not lie. That's how my brain tends to hear it when I when I hear it read or when I read it. It says thou shalt not bear false witness. What? Why does it say it that way? Why does God's commandment there put it that way? It's courtroom language, isn't it? You almost picture somebody up in the stand, you know, hand on the Bible, right hand on the air, whatever, and do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, and hopefully they still say that, and, and you say yes. Um, and why do you do that? Why must a witness in a trial especially tell the truth? What if it's a capital trial? What if someone is on trial for murder, and I don't know what place in this country still has the death penalty, but they should, but they're on trial for their life. If they're convicted, they're going to get the death penalty because they have shed the blood of man, and so by man their blood shall be shed according to Genesis 9. And if you, if you bear false witness and that person is convicted, what happens to them? They're, it's not just their name that gets damaged. They get put to death wrongly for, their, for a crime they did not do. And so the commandment puts it in its most dangerous and life-threatening form in order to impress upon us how dangerous and serious a thing it is to, 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 to bear the sin of falsehood and, and false witness against someone else. Falsehood, as sinful as it is, is one thing, but bearing false witness in a court of law can have deadly consequences. And that's how seriously you and I should think of falsehood, bearing false witness and evil speaking. It's no small sin in the eyes of God. Thomas Watson, I've quoted this before, but my favorite Puritan writer, he says, you may kill a man in his name as well as in his person. You can murder a person by talking. Some are loath to take away their neighbor's goods. Conscience would fly in their face. But better take away their corn out of their field, their wares out of their shop, than take away their good name. This is a sin for which no reparation can be made a blot in a man's name being like a blot on white paper, which will be never got out, God will visit for this sin. You know, Watson even says in that same chapter, 
that God has, this isn't a quote, but it's a paraphrase, God has put two natural fences around the tongue, your lips and your teeth, as a, as a, as a warning to show you how dangerous it can be. It's like having two leashes on your dog or two cages or whatever, two natural fences around uh, your, your lips, your, your tongue. So let us beware, especially as Christians, of the sins of slander, gossip, and evil speaking. As Christians, you and I must, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, what does he say? He says, put away falsehood and speak truth with our neighbors. And then he says, why? For we are members of one another. He's saying, as Christians, you hurt yourself when you harm another in the body of Christ. Not only that, but their enemies, David's enemies, shot their arrows secretly, and he uses the word suddenly in verse 4. It's like out of nowhere, and all of a sudden the arrows come flying. They wouldn't attack him openly. And then worst of all, what do they think about, who do they think is going to see them? Who do they not think is going to see them? No one. Verse 5, they don't even think God is going to see them in their wickedness. In verse 5, David says, They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? Now, that, that word them could refer to the snares, but I think it's both. I think they're saying, we're going to lay these traps. They're not physical traps. You know, who can see them? Nobody's going to see them. They're covered. And I think they're saying, even God doesn't see this. We're, we're going to get away scot-free. Nothing can possibly happen to us. Now, that's foolish to think that no one could see what they were doing. That not even God could see what they were doing in the wickedness of their hearts and their plots. And Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, writes this, A practical disbelief, or practical atheism really, a practical disbelief of God's omniscience is at the bottom of all the wickedness of the wicked. A practical disbelief of God. What is omniscience? It's that God knows everything. God sees everything. And a practical atheism or a practical disbelief of God's omniscience is behind that. You know, if we, if we were mindful of God's presence, there's a lot of things we wouldn't do. A lot of things we wouldn't say. A lot of things we wouldn't even think. So, in some sense, you could say we all have a little streak of practical atheism uh, still running through our veins. But, but God sees everything, doesn't he? Everything the wicked ever do, God sees as if it's on a big screen displayed right in front of him. Nothing, the Bible says, nothing can be hidden from God's sight, but all things are as an open book to him. An open book. And so David, what does David do? David knows that's David goes to God. David prays to his God. He pleads his case. He makes his argument, makes his complaint known to God. For why? He knows that God sees all and that God can be trusted to provide a refuge for his people, even him in his hour of trial. And so that's, that's David's complaint. The second thing we want to look at in verses 7 through 8 is David's confidence. David's confidence. Look at verses 7 through 8. It says, these are two of the best words in Scripture, but God. His enemies were doing one thing, and it looked bad, and David didn't have any help, humanly speaking. David didn't know what he was going to do. Then he says, but God. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues, Turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads, you know, shake their heads when they see them. He's, he's speaking here in prayer of his confidence in God's answer. I, I don't believe this is past tense. I think this is David writing during the conflict and expressing his confidence in God's future deliverance of him from the, the plots 
of his enemies. And look at God's answer in verse 7. But God shoots his arrow at them. Remember, one of their weapons was arrows. Not real arrows, but their words were like arrows being fired. And, and what does he say about God? God's got an arrow too. And remember remember the story of David and Goliath? You know, the, Goliath is mocking him and, oh, you're sending out this little dog. I'm paraphrasing. And he had this sword that was, can't even imagine how big this thing was, that you know one man probably couldn't lift it. How many stones did David grab from the brook? Five smooth stones. How many did he use? One. How many arrows does God need to dispatch David's enemies? One. God shoots his arrow at them, and they are wounded suddenly. The wicked shot their arrows, their slander, false witness, their conspiracy. They shot those things at David. But who was David's, as we sang this morning in the, the second hymn, shield and defender? God. And so it was God who would do the shooting back. David didn't have to fire a shot because God was going to do it for him. Think about this. How much worse is it for the wicked? Uh, how much worse uh, is it for the wicked than it would have been if it had just been David shooting back? It's like they don't know what they're asking for when they attack someone who prays, when they attack one of God's people. If it was just David shooting back, that wouldn't be so bad. But the wicked should greatly fear the prayers of God's people. Because when the, when they don't defend themselves, when they let God do the defending, God does the defending, and his arrow does not does not miss. The evil one, the wicked, should be very careful not to get the church praying. Because God does things when the church prays. And so what did David do? David entrusted himself to God to defend him. David didn't defend himself. He let God do the defending. He trusted God to judge his enemies. And God, according to David's confidence and faith, would do just that. God's arrow, one arrow, only needed one, would not miss its target. And just as, remember in verse 4, that he, he described the attacks of his enemy as, as them doing something suddenly? Well, David uses the same word here. Just as suddenly as, as his enemies sought to destroy him with their words, even so suddenly in verse 7, God would bring destruction upon them in his own timing. And what else does he do? What does God use against them? Their own words. That's a common refrain throughout Scripture. Very often, uh, the things that the enemies of God's people use for their destruction or intend for their harm, God turns them right back on themselves. You think of the story of of, uh, of Esther. You think of the story of, of Haman. I always think of it as hangman because he hangs himself on his own gallows. You know, Who was that gallows for? Mordecai. Who got hung on it? Haman. God has a, a, sen- a, a wicked sense of humor. God uses the, the wicked's own weapons very often against them. The wicked and the unrepentant not only deceive themselves at times by thinking, who can see? They don't think God can see. They also do so by telling themselves that not only will God not see, but because he doesn't see, he's not going to judge. That, that they can sin with impunity, they, that God will not do anything to them. But what does Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 say? It says in the King James, it says, To me belongeth, this is God, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. In other words, to the wicked, it seems like nothing's ever going to happen. But in God's eyes, oh, it's coming. And it's going to come with haste. 
It's going to come when they least expect it. You know, that verse, even that one phrase in that verse, their foot shall slide in due time, you might know that was the sermon text of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon in the First Great Awakening, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His sermon, part of the verse was his sermon text, Their foot shall slide in due time. And in that in that sermon, which I encourage you to read, you could probably get it online and, and read it, it's not all that long, he, he uh, notes four things that that short verse teaches us about God's judgment on the wicked that are implied by the idea of their foot sliding. Four things. The first is the wicked and unrepentant are, quote, always exposed to destruction. They don't realize it, but they're in danger at every moment. They don't know when the judgment is coming. The second thing is the wicked and unrepentant are always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. Sudden, unexpected destruction. And what's the picture of it? Someone walking on a slippery place. You know, we just moved, uh, many of you helped us move, and we have a tile floor in the kitchen, and it looks very nice. But I'll tell you, if you drop a little speck of water on that tile and you walk, I have almost taken a header a couple times. My foot almost slid in due time. I, I, it's like, I get now, I don't, I don't rush through the kitchen. I, I watch to make sure there's no water on the floor. That's the picture here. Their foot shall slide under their own weight in due time. That brings us to the third thing Edward says. The wicked and unrepentant are, quote, liable to fall of themselves, by themselves, of their own doing. They don't even need any help. They bring it upon themselves. Their own weight and their own false steps will end up casting them down. God will see to that, that it happens. The fourth thing, the reason why they are not fallen already, the only reason why they haven't fallen already and do not fall uh, right now is only that God's appointed time has not yet come. Because what does he say? That their foot shall slide when? In due time. God has a time set for them. We don't know what it is, and they certainly are unaware of what it is, but there is a time and it's going to come. And their foot shall slide in due time. I, I encourage you to read that sermon. Uh, it's not, if you've never heard a sermon or read a, a sermon like that, uh, you'll probably be kind of shocked when you read it. It's uh, what we sometimes call a uh, fire and brimstone sermon. And very often when you hear that phrase used, someone is kind of dismissing the sermon as, oh, that's a fire and brimstone sermon. It's all about hell and judgment and condemnation. And, and you know, that sermon God used, as most people think, as kind of the thing that started the, great, the first great awakening. You know, sermons on, on God's judgment are rare in our day, but... Uh, they should not be dismissed, and they should be heard uh, from time to time. Think about Noah. Think about Noah's neighbors before the flood. Dismissing him as a fool, the Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter 2.5. What does that mean? He was warning people of the judgment that was about to come, and seemingly no one listened. They probably mocked him as a fool right until the flood came. Well, in the same way, sinners today scoff at the warnings of God's just judgment to their own peril. But God's arrow never misses its mark, and the confidence that this should give the people of God in time of trial should be a great comfort to you and I in time of trial and conflict and persecution. Well, that brings us to the third point in our text, David's conclusion. Now what? What is the result of God's arrow besides the downfall of the wicked? What is the result of God's arrow? What happens when God's just judgments 
come in this world. That's what David's going to address here in verses 9 through 10. When, when God's arrow strikes the wicked in answering David's prayer, what happens? What happens when he casts down the wicked in his judgments in this world? At least two things David mentions in our text. The first is verse 9. First, all mankind fears. All mankind fears. You know, David asked God to, to save him from the dread or the fear of his enemy in verse 1. Now he says, when God, when God sends his judgments, all mankind fears. What's he saying? When people see God at work, and when they see God at work in judging the wicked and defending his people, they learn to fear God. They learn, finally, to fear God. And that's a good thing. That brings glory to God's name when people finally fear Him. The fear of God is a good thing. And it's a bad thing when the fear of God is not in a place. And then, as David says in verse 9, they, the people, the, the mankind, quote, tell what God has brought about and ponder or think about what He has done. People's thoughts and words suddenly start turning to God. Do you see what God did? That's what happens when God sends his judgment. When God acts in judgment, people start to think about God, and people start to talk amongst each other about God. They think about his holiness, they think about his justice, they think about his power, the fact that he sees and knows all all things, that nothing escapes his sight. And then the best thing that could happen is they, they sometimes often think about their own sin and guilt, and their need for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See how, see how God can bring good out of these things. God can bring good even out of your trials and your circumstances. He can bring people to salvation in Christ even through those things. But what's the second thing that God does through these judgments? The righteous, those who trust in God for refuge, what does verse 10 say they do? They rejoice in the Lord. God's judgments as, as, Sobering as they are, to God's people, bring rejoicing. They should bring rejoicing. We should praise God and rejoice in Him for His mercy, His kindness, His faithfulness in defending His people. God's judgments are a good thing. We're studying through the book of Revelation and other most Sundays right now, as you know, and much of that book is a lot like this, this psalm. God sending judgments. You know, His, his, his you know, vials of wrath, the, the, the scroll being, the seals being broken, and it, it can read like a scary book. But if you're a Christian, it shouldn't read like a scary book. It should read as a great encouragement that God is not going to sit there and do nothing when his people are harmed. He will deliver his people in this life and in the end as well. And so what does that mean? The result of, of this kind of prayer and God's answer to this kind of prayer is that God is feared and his name is glorified. That, that should be the first motivation for anything that we pray for. It's the glory of God. Even in these kinds of situations, we should pray that God's name be glorified, that God be feared. And that's what David says in his confidence is that when God answers his prayer, this is what's going to happen. All mankind is going to fear and all God's people are going to do what? Rejoice and learn more and more to trust in God. That's the lesson. That's the lesson David needed to learn. It's a lesson you and I need to learn as well. So what do you do when you're slandered or spoken evil of falsely by others? What, what do you do? I know what I do. I get mad, you know, you get mad. Maybe you think about getting even, oh, you know, I'm going to tell somebody. Well, what, what does David do? What, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to take matters into our own hands? Are we supposed to return evil for evil? No. 
Or do you do what David did here and entrust yourself to God and seek his face in prayer, taking refuge in him alone and trusting that he will make it right? God is able to make these things right. And we really aren't. We'd screw it up anyway. But God can make all these things right. We are to emulate not just David, which we are to emulate uh, in our example of prayer, but also Jesus Christ himself. Look at 1 Peter 2, verses 23 to 25. Peter writes this about Christ. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were, uh, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We were lost sheep, and how did, how did Christ get us back? By bearing our sins uh, in his body on the tree. He suffered that we might be saved. And why did he do that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might follow his example and not revile in return. And when we suffer, we do not threaten in return, but we should follow his example in entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. God is able to handle these things. Uh, he he, so, he bore our sins and his body on the tree to make us right with him. He did all that for your salvation and mine. Jesus endured with spade, in spades the kinds of things and more that David did and speaks of in this psalm. And in fact, you could say that this psalm, while it's of David, is really ultimately about Christ and how he bore all these things, the reproach of, of the wicked and even unto his death. He did all that for our salvation. And so what that means is we who are in Christ must entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, even if that means suffering for the name of Christ. And we are to entrust that God is able to make things right. And one day he will do just that. So when your enemies shoot their arrows at you in secret, what do you do? What's the first thing you should do? What's the main thing you should do? Pray. It sounds so simple and so it's not, it sounds simple, but it's not easy to do. Because we want to take matters, but pray. Pray. Turn to God in prayer. Make your complaint known to God. He already knows about it. And his arrow in due time will strike the wicked, to deliver you and to glorify his name. Amen. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the psalms that help us to, to be able to worship and sing, even during time of trial and conflict and persecution. That David, uh, David didn't just pray to you, but he wrote a psalm to help us to have a song to worship uh, you by, to read about your ways, your goodness, even in your judgments, in delivering your people, and even to teach us as a pattern, as, a, as a, an example in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be a people who entrust ourselves to you who just judgely in all things. Uh, make us a people of prayer. We pray that you would give us grace to follow the example of our Savior and, and endure these things, these kinds of things, even far lesser things, uh, for the sake of the glory of the name of Christ, that we would entrust ourselves to you and to your judgment and not take things into our own hands. And we thank you that you will one day make all things right. Even the church around this world that is suffering violent persecution, not just words, but suffering martyrdom for the name of Christ, that one day you will make all those things right. Uh, give us 
uh, as your people all over this world, give us grace to entrust ourselves to you, to, to know that you see all and you will make all things right, and that our God is good and you are our shield and defender, Lord. And we pray that if there's anybody here this morning that is still yet in their sins and outside of Christ, that you might uh, open their eyes to their sin, their need for the Savior, that they might look to him in faith and have life in his name. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.